Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 58, Land Race Gardening with Joseph Lofthouse. Joseph Lofthouse, author, gardener, farmer, is today's guest on the Plant Cunning Podcast. He's such an interesting person to talk to, and Isaac and I had a great time getting to know him today. Joseph comes from a long line of farmers and growers, and he even tells a great story about his great-great-grandfather who selected a very special seed, so definitely take a listen to hear more about that. I just love learning about Joseph's outlook as a grower. What some farmers may call weeds and pests Joseph sees as companions and allies in his gardening. He makes contracts with the local bugs and simply adores the self-regenerating cover crops that naturally grow as weeds in his garden. If you're a grower, a farmer, homesteader, gardener of any kind, seed saver, you're going to absolutely love this episode. We dive into promiscuous pollination, which is encouraging the survival of the fittest in the garden, essentially. What land race gardening actually is and how it compares to something like gardening with heirlooms. And we cover how important community is, not just in land race gardening specifically, but also in just our survival and food security and how creating really resilient local varieties of plants that can adapt to not only our local seasons and drought or fire conditions or whatever it may be, but can adapt to a changing climate. And so we really dive deep in this episode. There's lots of examples of different plants that he's grown with success, like carrots for clay and rocky soil, as well as stories and anecdotes from Joseph. I really liked hearing about his philosophy both for the garden and for life and I know you're going to love this episode too. As always thank you so much to all of our supporters over at Patreon. If you'd like to check out the different tiers that we have to offer at Patreon starting at the $4 a month level you can go to patreon.com slash plant cunning. One of the member benefits for patrons at the $9 level is you'll have access to episodes that are only available on patreon.com. So this episode is actually one of those where we've split it into two. The first 45 minutes is available here to you now for free. And then if you'd like to access the second half of the conversation, you can go to patreon.com slash plant cunning and sign up for this month at $9. As some of our listeners may know, I'm a community herbalist and I make some herbal products like skin soothing salve and muscle rubs and bath salts and room and body and mask sprays under the name Traveling Herb Farmer. I have some gift kits on my website that include a salve and a tincture and a lip balm with different themes like a lung and respiratory immune support blend, a stress relief self-care lavender love blend, and a woodland blend. All the herbs that I use are either grown here at our homestead in central New York or harvested from a nearby place with a lot of care and reverence, and I use all organic ingredients. So 
check it out. See if there's anything that catches your eye for you or yours. My website is www.travelingherbfarmer.com. That's travelingherbfarmer.com. As a listener of Plant Cunning, I'd love to offer you free shipping on up to five orders for the whole month of December. So at checkout, just enter the promo code PLANTCUNNING21. Capital P, capital C, Plant Cunning 21 for free shipping. And without further ado, we bring you Joseph Lofthouse. How are you doing today, Joseph? I'm doing good, AC. Thanks for asking. Awesome. We are just like super excited to talk to you. Um, ever since we got your book in Land Race Gardening, we've just been talking about these ideas that you've presented to us. And, you know, we just can tell like from reading this that you're a super cool person. So we're just really stoked to chat with you. We have a traditional first question on the plant cutting podcast. Yeah. So, uh, what brought you to the plant path? So I probably didn't know that there was any other path because my family for as long <laughs> as anybody can remember have been farmers. And so it just seems natural for me to continue that tradition cool so where did you grow up where was you and your family from so my family grew up in the mountains of northern utah we're in a in a little valley so the cold air pours down out of the mountains all all summer and all winter Mm -hmm. and kind of affects what things i can grow and how i can grow them so so what is your like uh what's your like usda zone So we're in a USDA zone four or five. Hmm. I have a couple of different fields and they're at different elevations. So the the zone varies between fields. But in that ballpark, I have about a hundred day growing season. Sometimes it can be as short as like 85 days or as long as 110. Mm -hmm. But, But I can only grow a 70 day tomato just because it's so cold that they don't really have enough warmth to develop in here. Mm. My fields are irrigated. And in the 20 years I've been farming, we only had one season where there wasn't sufficient irrigation water. And, and so that's a blessing to me as a farmer. Oh yeah. But your the climate is generally pretty dry compared to like where we are out East. Yeah, so relative humidity sometimes will be like 5% in an, in an evening. And I might not have dew in my garden the whole growing season. Wow. Uh, so, so for me, dew is an unusual celebration, something that's so weird that you have to just feel uneasy about it. Yeah, I see. We're kind of opposite there. We're a similar climate zone. We're maybe a little bit warmer than you. Um, but our, we have so much, it's like 90% humidity most of the time. Yeah, the dew will be uh, on the grass until noon sometimes. Right. Crazy. <laughs> but yeah, you've got some pretty specific like challenges and obstacles with your climate zone. And that, I mean, that, that brings in why land race, uh, gardening is so important, but we can talk about that a little bit later, but it'd be interesting to, to talk about your family a little bit. Cause in the book, you mentioned that your great grandfather introduced a strain of, of grain into the, the area that is still grown. 
so so my um great great grandfather um in about 1880 was growing grains and the usda at that time used to collect seeds and send them to farmers just so that they could try and there was one seed in that in that packet of seeds he got that grew better than all of the rest of the the wheat in his field better than anything he'd ever saw before and so he took that one plant and grew it out in his family garden and eventually it went on to become the most widely planted wheat in southern idaho and northern utah wow that's so cool yeah and that that was just because he was paying attention that there was something different in his field something that really liked growing here mm-hmm. right and, and not everything likes growing in that in, in your climate <laughs> oh no <laughs> <laughs> i I, re- I received about 2,000 varieties of wheat that I planted in my field here and less than uh, like only 5% of them actually did very well for me. Just to show you how how tough it is for a crop that you'd think would grow anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So are you um, like a market gardener? Do you grow for farmer's markets and and restaurants, things like that, vegetables and grains and things? So I originally started farming like 12 years ago as a market gardener. Uh-huh. And I was selling for restaurants and I was running a CSA. But along the way, I figured out that there was $20 worth of seeds in a $2 cantaloupe. <laughs> oh. Yeah. And so I, I transitioned to growing more seeds Mm. and and that was that was easier on me I used to farm up to four acres just Mm. myself as a and my manual labor and a tractor once in a while yeah oh my goodness (laughs) that was too much I couldn't do it well (laughs) four acres is a lot so so now I'm currently farming three quarters of an acre Uh uh-huh and I'm a, I call myself a vacant lot farmer. Nice. And, and in other words, land is a burden to its owners. And if they can find someone that will take care of it for them, they think that's really cool. And so do I. Yeah. And, and so at one time I was just saying yes to anybody that said they wanted me to farm their land. And now I'm being more discerning and just, just sticking with one Mm -hmm. garden plot well and a couple of little uh sidewalk gardens because i like to have as much as i say that i like cross-pollination once in a while i don't want Mm cross-pollination and so i have a couple little backyard gardens that i people let me use as well cool so what do your gardens look like what's your like garden philosophy are they messy are they very orderly (laughs) so my gardens are weedy because i think of the weeds as a self-regenerating uh multi-species cover crop totally 
Yeah. And I take, I take those weeds and I turn them right back into the soil right where they grew. And that provides my soil fertility for next year. Uh-huh. And also as a plant breeder, I want to be selecting for plants that can outcompete the weeds. Yeah. And so weeds are a, a blessing to my garden because then they, they select which plants can really thrive here. Mm. Um, I, I always used to lose my, when I was a market gardener, I always used to lose my carrots to the weeds because the carrots were so slow to germinate and they grew so slowly. And so for two or three years in a row, I let the carrots grow without weeding and just replanted whatever meager little plants I managed to harvest. Uh-huh. Replant, replanting mean to get seeds from them the second year. Cool. And so these days, my carrots can outcompete the weeds. They grow these huge plants that are like two feet tall. What? Just, and the carrots will be three pounds each. Wow. Just these huge monster carrots. So my garden is very weedy. <laughs> That's so inspiring. Yeah, carrots are really tricky, especially we have such rocky soil. And we, I had to like baby this tiny little four by four foot patch of bed for my carrots to just get some. Right. So now I'm totally going to do that and replant some of them to get the seeds for next year and try to get them to do well for us here. Well, see, another thing that I ended up selecting for in carrots is I ended up selecting for carrots that are more beet shaped. Oh, because, then, yeah. because my soil is really heavy clay. And so in the fall, digging carrots was just problematic but if i select for like wedge shaped carrots that are shorter and not so long then they're they're much easier to deal with cool that's another good tip so how did you get started um selecting seeds uh was it because like the varieties from the seed companies weren't working well for you um or because of challenges like you just mentioned like how did that process start it had nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> it was all about art. Ah, oh, nice. Because I was a market farmer and I wanted some sweet corn that had some color in it. And none of the commercial sources of sweet corn had color in them. And I'm like, wah, wah, wah. And, and so there was this farmer back in Indiana, Alan Bishop. And he had taken 200 varieties of sweet corn, everything he could find from anywhere, and grew them together in a field and let them Mm cross-pollinate. And he ended up with sweet corn that had speckles of color all over in it. And some of the the cobs were fully like orange or red or gray. And so I planted it originally for the, for decoration <laughs> nice. okay but but then when i when i saw how that crop grew it was really lovely because some plants were short and they just plain old died and some of the seed died before it germinated but some of it grew and it was robust and it was more reliable for me than the commercial sweet corn that i'd been growing and and I just fell in love with the idea of, 
allowing promiscuous pollination and then saving seeds from what was um, survival of the fittest. Mm. And, and so once I understood that idea, then I started changing everything I grew to that sort of growing conditions. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, starting from, you know, just wanting to appreciate some color and, you know, beauty, you really like reframed how you think about growing and the plant world in general, it seems like. Right. And along the way, I stopped thinking about diseases and pests as my enemies. Yeah. And I started thinking of them as my friends and my companions. And they teach the plants how to grow. They teach me what what plants are their survivors and that aren't bothered by the pests and the diseases. Yeah, that's amazing. And it brings to my mind a story that you have in, in your book, um, which to me, like, I think this is a, a really an animist perspective. And I think a lot of like animism is kind of a buzzword these days. A lot of people are a little academic with it, but what you're doing is like actually relating to all of these beings as people that you have actual relationships yeah, with. Yeah, the weeds and the insects and the plants that you're growing, you know, yourself. But so you ha- you have like, contracts with your uh potato beetles right (laughs) so the the contract with the potato beetles goes something like this i'm not going to harm the potato beetles in any way as long as they don't eat the potatoes and they have a a natural or there's a weed in my garden that is the natural host for the potato beetles Mm -hmm they'd rather eat that than my potatoes anyway. And so I never harm a potato beetle as long as it's eating the weed. Mm -hmm. And if my potatoes, if I have a variety of potato that starts attracting the, the beetles, I kill that variety of potato because I don't want to confuse the terms of the contract. Mm. Yeah. Okay. and, And so so I'm sort of breeding the beetles or breed or modifying the culture of the beetles, whatever that, however that works mm-hmm. so that they can exist in peace and harmony in my garden. Mm. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Beautiful. So I, I can't do that kind of contract with say the, uh, the cabbage white moss that blow in on the wind. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. But 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 still, I don't I don't harm them in any way. Mm-hmm. Like I grow red cabbages, for example, because the green caterpillars show up in sharp contrast on the ca- on the red cabbage leaves, and then the predators can eat them. Oh, mm. cool! And so it it works out all right. <laughs> Very smart. It, and like those um, tomato hornworms that go and. Oh, yeah. Decimate a tomato. Mm-hmm. Those turn into hummingbird moths. And the hummingbird moths are so precious to me because oh. of, the, of my childhood memories, watching them in my grandmother's bleeding heart flowers and her petunias. Yeah. And, and I grow like 300 tomato plants. I don't care if the moths eat some of them. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. 
Hummingbird moths are gorgeous. Yeah, they're amazing. I I didn't I never knew that either until I read your book that uh that the hornworms were actually baby hummingbird moths. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually made sure I'd do the research on that because it would have been really dumb to say that if it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're a unique looking like caterpillar too you know like yeah. they're right you know, that little spiky unicorn uh horn but yeah that's another another point where like aesthetics and beauty um and you know feeling is is an important part of the selection process yeah well when i was a market farmer when i was first starting to develop land race crops and grow my own varieties the university conducted a survey of my customers and they said, why do you buy Joseph's produce? And I was thinking, oh, they're going to say because it's organic, because it's locally grown, because I know the farmer. No, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was for the flavor. Mm. And that was shocking to me and startling. And it totally changed how I think about my, my growing and my plant breeding because I adopted the attitude that I would taste every fruit before I save seeds from it. And if I didn't like the flavor of a fruit, it, it was cold, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And, and what that did for me was over a few years, my plants became really flavorful and delightful. Mm. I really like how you mentioned too, that you would ask some of your customers to save seeds for you of the fruit that they really liked as well. Yes. And and that way my plant breeding becomes a community effort. Yeah. And it's not just me. I had a, a chef that I would take him hundreds of squash a year and he would save seeds from all of them unless he thought the flavor or the color or something, the smell was off. And then he would call them. Uh-huh. And then he'd also give me a little piece of the fruit with the seeds so that I could taste it at home and make sure that, oh, we had a two-step validation process for the flavor. That's mm. so cool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I would like to get into more about the community and how important that is in land race gardening. But First, I think maybe we should define what a land race is. <laughs> so to me, my definition of land race is a crop that is genetically diverse, cross-pollinating, so that it can undergo survival of the fittest selection to become locally adapted. Mm-hmm. And also to me, land races are intimately connected with a community yeah and with a location mm-hmm. and so how does that different how how's that different than like an heirloom for instance so an heirloom my definition of an heirloom <laughs> is a variety that was developed far away and long ago uh-huh yeah and ha- and has been inbred ever since then. Right. And so what, what happens with the heirlooms is generation after generation, maybe for 50 years, for 100 years, 
they become inbred over and over and over again. And what the inbreeding does is it causes them to lose genetic diversity. And so heirlooms end up becoming these fragile little varieties that might have been wonderful a long time ago and far away, but they're not really as adapted to local conditions as they could be. And they, and, I guess they also don't have the ability to adapt to new things, have new changes either, right? Right. And they lack that ability because of the lack of genetic diversity. So I have neighbors that have the same growing conditions that I do. They have the same soil. They have the same arid climate. They have the same irrigation water. And they will whine to me that they can't keep their crops alive with everyday irrigation. And how come I only irrigate once a week? <laughs> hmm. And and so I talk to them about where they got their seeds and they'll say, oh, we got these from beautiful organic farm up in Oregon. Damp, wet, humid, mm. overcast constantly. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and then they come here and it's 5% humidity and the sun shines all day, every day. <laughs> and it's like, no wonder they don't thrive because yeah. they were adapted to someplace else far away. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of value in the heirlooms. If you take four or five of them, allow them to cross pollinate with each other and then select among those for things that can thrive in current conditions in our local farms. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I've been thinking about this in terms of uh, geese because we, we did, we did geese this year. And uh -huh. we got a variety that was more recently from France, um, but it looks the same as like American, an American Toulouse goose, but the American Toulouse goose, and there are two kinds. There's the one that has like the, the big fat pendulums on their necks and so on. And those uh -huh. have like some of the lowest fertility of any domesticated geese because they've just been inbred and inbred over a hundred years. Right. And whereas these geese that are actually more of a land race, that are more recently brought in from France. They have like, they lay more eggs than any of the other breeds and they, you know, high fertility, high fertility rates because in America, people are breeding geese primarily for like 4-H clubs and like showing them instead of for like meat and eggs. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it, that 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 is so important that like the, we have this idea of an heirloom and it's, it's more of the idea of, of like this abstract, ideal of what it should be than to actually how it does in the local environment. Right. Well, we, we use a term often to describe heirlooms. We say they are open pollinated mm. and that implies, oh, there's some genetic diversity running around and blah, blah, blah. But in actuality, every trick that we know is used to prevent those open pollinated varieties from actually crossing. Hmm. You know, even though emotionally we think of open pollinated as, oh, there's going to be diversity and, and cross pollination. Yeah. No. <laughs> so when you start a land race project, you try to bring in lots of different genetics from all over and see what works well where you are. I've started them in several different ways. Like with the sweet corn project, we brought in 200 varieties and crossed them and 
and away we went. With the watermelon, we did the same thing. With one of my squash land races, it started with an accidental cross-pollination. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's, it's because I had a green buttercup squash and it got pollinated with something like a red curry. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I had red colors in my green butternut squash. Hmm. So I reselected for the flavor I love and some of the red fruits and some of the green fruits. Cool. And then a few years later, that got cross-pollinated again with a, a Hopi white squash. Mm-hmm. And so that brought more colors in and more diversity. And so that was just a slow, gradual process as compared to some of the intentional crosses. Cool. When you were, when you're guiding these land races, you are still using a lot of selection criteria, right? You're not just like letting them just go willy nilly. So, so my experience is that about 80% of the selection is happening by the environment. Right. I have nothing to do with it. The environment is, is doing the selection. And then on top of that selection, I'm saving what I love. Mm-hmm. I'm saving the colors I love, the flavors I love, the growth habits that I love. Um, if a plant just looks really good, I'm going to save seeds from it. <laughs> and I might plant it separately just to see what it does, or I might plant it, say, on a, a thing I commonly do is I plant the what I think is the best on one end of the row and then plant the, the bulk seed further down the row. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So what are some of your favorite, you know, flavors? And like, what do you, what do you select for, you know, specifically with, with some of your plants? So I always love the taste of carotenes in my food. Mm. And, and so carotene, what, carotene is like the orange color? Yes, carotene is an orange colored um, antioxidant. And the more orange colored the vegetable is, the more carotenes it has in it is is a rough approximation. And so when I'm selecting for my squash, if I cut a squash open and it's white inside, I just, it's going right in the compost. I don't even have to taste it because I know it's going to be ghastly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But if it's, if it's orange or deep orange or deep yellow, Uh uh-huh. Then, then it's a candidate for cooking and tasting. Mm-hmm. And I, I've done the same kind of thing with sweet corn and with my musk melons, because to me, they just taste better if they're more colorful. Yeah. And so is that different than like the red color? So uh, the red colors, there's two different red colors, but the, the red color in like, corn and cabbage is anthocyanins Mm -hmm. and they can taste really well or really well really good as well Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i know there are plant breeders that specifically select for the deepest uh purple colors Mm -hmm. because of that flavor Mm. and then there's the the red color in beets let's see what's that called Betalane or something like that. Um, I don't know if I particularly like that flavor. 
Hmm. So what do you love so much about carotene? Um, it just makes me happy. (laughs) 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 And, and also the carotenes are a precursor to vitamin A in the body. And so I like to imagine, have my little fantasy that if I select for higher carotenes in my food, that I'm getting better nutrition as well. Mm -hmm. Uh But that's, that's interesting that like, well, first of all, you have the ability to like, uh, listen to your body and feel like, like a specific chemical compound makes you happy, you know, like in a, in a food. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I listen to my body also. And I know that, uh, green tomatoes must be poisonous. (laughs) Ah. Even if you fry them, even if, (laughs) (laughs) but but there also, when I pay attention, I think that there's poisons in the like bean seeds. Uh huh. And those poisons are dissipated by cooking. And so I make sure and cook anything beans really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also the uh, soaking them r- removes some of the, what are they called? Lectins. Lectins. Or? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I, after we, we started doing that, definitely, you know, it seems like I'm, I'm absorbing more of the nutrients from beans and like not having as much intestinal distress. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I can, I concur with that. Soaking is a, is a great way to prepare beans. And we have these traditional cooking methods and they're there for a reason. I mean, people have been paying attention to how foods affect their body for tens of thousands of years. And, and traditional cooking methods with beans are that you soak them and you cook them for a long time. And, and so I'm not really inventing anything new when I, when I pay attention to how food makes me feel. Yeah, totally. And I guess another one of those things you talk about in the book is with corn, nixtamalization. And this is something that I also do, like when I'm getting tortillas from the store, there's like a couple brands that have lime as an ingredient, <laughs> right? And most of them don't, but that's a traditional way of, of processing corn that makes it more bioavailable, right? Yes. It, it releases the, a B vitamin from it. niacin, I think maybe also it eliminates some of the toxins from mold on the seed. Ah, and so you use like a like pickling lime for that, but yeah, uh, I, I just get it from the grocery store. But then you can also use just wood ash. Yes. Have you ever tried that? Is it, is it good? <laughs> um, I haven't tried the wood ash because um, lime is so easy to get at the grocery store. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess uh, we, we just also, we, you know, we have a wood stove, so we have a lot of wood ash, <laughs> you know. Well, Try to find things to do with it. If I was going to do it with wood ash, I would just make sure and use fresh ash. Uh-huh. Because the carbon dioxide from the air will deactivate it over time. Okay. Ah, yeah. Good to know. Cool. So um, there, there are some other really good important things about land race breeding that makes a lot of sense as far as like, because when you have this genetic diversity... Um, it's good for adapting to your locality, but also, um, I mean, that's important for like food security and climate instability. Mm-hmm. 
have you have, in, during your years of gardening, have you noticed like climate patterns changing or um, do you see this as a way, as a strategy to be able to have food security in such an in, in unstable climate? So land-based gardening is beautiful for food security because there's so much genetic diversity that the crops can adjust to whatever the climate does. Yeah. And like I, I have some years that are dry years and some families will do better in those dry years and the other families will do better in the wet years. But while I'm saving seeds, if I save liberally so that I don't um, throw away every plant that doesn't do very well this year, then I keep some diversity around so that so that they can continue to change. Another thing that I do to keep the diversity up is I might introduce a new variety from time to time, say 5% or 10% of my seed that I plant might be a new variety. If I like it, I save seeds from it. If I don't, it hasn't really affected my, my regular crop, but it has brought some diversity with it. And I'm not smart enough to predict what diversity is going to be needed in the future. Mm -hmm. So I just keep as much diversity as makes sense to keep. Yeah. I, I'm also interested is where did you get the idea for land race gardening? Because I mean, it's not, I mean, it's been around for a while, but it's not commonly talked about as far as I'm aware. So I got the idea from that variety of corn that I grew, my first landrace crop. And traditionally, land races are this evil thing, you know, this uh, unevolved. Uh, backwards. Backwards. Things that the hill people do. Uh -huh. You know, it's not what sophisticated people do. But in my own experience, the land races are the most sophisticated way to grow. They're the most evolved and, and wise because of the genetic diversity and their ability to adapt to every local condition, to the farmer's habits even. Mm -hmm. Right. Like not wanting to weed as much or uh -huh. certain well, shaped things. Yeah. Well, like I, I was evaluating the growing practices of a seed company and one of the farmers in the seed company was planting his plants over top of plastic. He was covering them with plastic and his whole growing system was devoted to plastic, plastic, plastic. Yeah. yeah. And so what he was ending up doing is he was selecting for plants that are adapted to growing on plastic and with plastic and under plastic. Oh, wow. And irrigated so, by plastic. Yes. He was irrigating with plastic. Mm -hmm. And, and so then when they actually got to a gardener that likes growing in the open air, in the dirt, in the soil, if we want to be fancy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then they don't grow because they're missing essential components of their, of their biology. Yeah. Oh, and, wow. And the, the commercial seed industry did the same thing because they grow in these fields that are weeded with pesticides and the crops are protected with pesticides and herbicides and all of these chemicals are used. 
and so the plants come to depend on those and forget how to how to deal with a bug or a, a weed and so when they get to a gardener where the farmer doesn't want to poison their crops the seeds are at a disadvantage because they don't have their normal ecosystem surrounding them mm. right yeah just shows how important selection is and how it's happening all the time regardless of whether or not you're being conscious about it oh yes <laughs> i i'm all the time being startled about a trait that my plants have developed in response to my habits as a farmer mm-hmm. and it's like oh i did that <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you give us an example of some well well one example that really stands out to me is I grow my tomatoes sprawling on the ground. Same. (laughs) So, uh, no, you know, I don't trellis them. I don't worry about airflow. I don't worry about dirt splashing on the leaves. Mm -hmm. And so then when I was picking tomatoes for saving seeds, I was only picking clean tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Any tomato that was dirty because it was laying in the dirt, I wasn't picking. And -hmm. what that ended up doing for me is my tomato vines took on an architecture where they were these little arcs cool Um, and the the tomatoes (laughs) would stay up on the arcs and it's like oh yeah that habit (laughs) yes that's amazing and you do that with with corn too yes i i was more deliberate with it on the corn because i had I have some fields where there's coons and skunks and I have some fields where there's not. And one year I moved my sweet corn patch into the, and grew it in the field where it has the skunks and the coons. And they took out most of my crop. (laughs) (laughs) But I allowed it because I like to live in harmony with the ecosystem, but Mm -hmm. I saved the seeds from that crop and replanted and after about three years, the, the coons and the skunks weren't taking my corn anymore because the stalks on the corn had got really robust and the cobs had went from being about three feet off the ground to being about five feet off the ground. Oh, wow. And, right. and the animals are kind of lazy. They just want to go and push <laughs> a corn stalk over and, and eat it. Mm. Uh, the corn became strong enough that they couldn't just easily push it over and they would have had to climb up the stock or whatever. And it's like, heck with this. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and so that was a, a more intentional selection for resistance to those mammals. Yeah. And we, we were talking about beans earlier and I actually wanted to ask you, like, what do you select for in beans and what type of beans do you like to grow? So I like to grow bush beans uh-huh. because I don't want to put poles in my garden because yeah. that's labor. Yeah. It's labor to put them in. It's labor to take them down. It's labor to harvest them one pot at a time. Where when I grow bush beans at harvest time, I'll yank the whole plant up, throw it on a tarp, jump up and down on it. And then I have my harvest. <laughs> Love that. There's another bean trait that I really like, which I call semi-vining, mm-hmm. because they, 
they have vines that are larger than, or they grow larger than the bush beans, but they don't really climb up anything. They just sort of sprawl around. And I don't call against that trait when I see it because they tend to be really productive beans. But I grow my beans all jumbled up together. So I might have a thousand varieties of beans on my farm and I can identify about a hundred of them as, as being distinctly different. And whatever is the most productive tends to produce the most seeds. And so I don't mind at all, all doing the, the bulk planting and the bulk harvest of a whole bunch of different varieties. But so beans, they're not as easy to do like the land race and the outcrossing thing with, right? Correct. It, it, my, on my farm, beans are outcrossing at about a 1% rate. Okay. Uh, on some farms, they might produce as much as 5% outcro- or outcrossing. So one of my habits is to watch for those naturally occurring hybrids mm-hmm. and plant them in, in larger quantities the next year. What that ends up doing is my beans are becoming locally adapted, but it's a lot slower than with a cross-pollinating crop like corn. Right, right. Because the more often you can have a cross-pollination event, the more it's like running a lottery. The more crosses you have, the more chances you have to win the lottery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some of the other plants that are harder to do this with? There's some plants that we grow by cloning. Yeah. Garlic and potatoes. They have been grown by cloning for so long and have accumulated so much chromosome damage during that time that they have basically forgotten how to produce seeds. And, and so with garlic some plant explorers went to the Tian Shan mountains over in like Uzbekistan and, and actually found some wild garlic that could still cross pollinate. And so we're working on developing new varieties of garlic by, by working with those strains. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I guess a lot of those plants like potatoes, any, any tubers or bulbs are just, really hard. Right. Um, People used to tell me when I first started doing this, that Jerusalem artichokes are sterile and they don't make seeds. But what actually is going on is they can't make seeds with themselves. And so if you have a a whole garden, that's all a clone of one plant, it's not going to make seeds. Uh huh. Yeah. But if you get three or four varieties, then they'll make seeds, and you can plant those seeds and get new varieties. Okay, folks, we've reached the halfway point of episode 58 with Joseph. So please check out the second half at our Patreon, which is patreon.com/slash plantcunning. And again, if you're interested in herbal products, you can see my website at travelingherbfarmer.com. And if you're interested in buying seeds or buying Joseph's book, Land Race Gardening, you can go to his website, which is lofthouse.com, L-O-F-T-H-O-U-S-E.com.
Thanks for listening. We wish you all the best.